you have your Bibles, open them to Colossians chapter 3. The reason we're in Colossians tonight is just uh, a general just surrender to efficiency in my life. Uh, Last, uh, yesterday, I was speaking at a young adult retreat. Friday, I was at the young adult retreat speaking. And uh, then, of course, this morning, I was speaking. And uh, five sermons in one weekend was just feeling a little heavy. So I thought, you know what? I don't know any of you that attended the Young Adults Retreat, so I can, I can recycle at least one sermon and uh, get away with it, and uh, hopefully it will be encouraging to you all, and then uh, by God's grace, we'll be back in 1 Timothy in the coming weeks. Uh, it, again, Colossians chapter 3. Now, the unfortunate thing about preaching a sermon like this is Colossians 3 comes after Colossians 1 and 2, which I'm not preaching tonight, um, and, and the significance of that is, is the apostle has already laid a foundation. He's already, he's already made a lot of um, claims about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he begins working through the implications for the Christian life, and he comes to chapter 3, and it's very applicational. Do this. And I, I want to focus on the do this, but I, I want to show you that relationship. And so when you look in chapter 3, verse 1, there's this requirement for Christian living that we seek those things that are above, that we set our mind on those heavenly things. And so there's this requirement for Christian living. But he's anchoring that to the work of Christ. He's anchoring that to what Christ has already accomplished. So if you look with me in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Now, if you were just to go back a little bit, I I think you'll recognize he is dealing with the pursuit of holiness. Um, Go back to verse 16 with me. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink with regard to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All right, so he's, he's speaking in reference to some of the, the rituals that um, have been brought forward without being filtered through the lens of the work of Christ. So, so like, for instance, uh, the regulations of the law, most of them have either repetition in the New Testament or they... Or they through Christ are fulfilled or set aside because they deal with civil government, they deal with things that aren't part of the church, and so they're not repeated. I think the Sabbath and the, the holidays, or the holy days for Israel, are, are part of that. Uh, no one's suggesting that we should follow Passover. Uh, in fact, Paul's very clear on circumcision, that that's been set aside. Both Romans 14 and this text here suggest to us that Sabbaths are no longer required as part of the ritual essence of the law. It, but yet, those those inherited aspects of God's word in the Old Testament, when wrongly filtered through Christ, lead to a misguided pursuit of holiness. And so he's saying, hey, be careful. Be careful how you engage with the Old Testament. If you don't filter it through the lens of Christ, you're in trouble. But continue on, and for me, this is incredibly powerful. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is it you are still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Um, I, I am going to use as an example, I have no problem with, but I'm using it as, as, as an example, Seventh-day Adventist and like a paleo diet. If you want to be on the paleo diet or you want to, you know, just eat vegetables and like go to a Daniel diet or any of these types of things, or eat Ezekiel bread. I have no idea what Ezekiel bread really is, but if you want to go there, fine, you're welcome to, but don't be deceived. The, the, the giving up of the things God has put in this world for our enjoyment does not produce holiness, nor, notice that last line there, it is of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, so, so I would suggest to you, like, dating standards don't make you holy. Dating standards or any standard in life, whether it's um, your position on alcohol or tattoos or what movies you watch, your standards don't actually cause you to win in the battle of the flesh. The cause of that battle's victory is something else entirely. Uh, I, I don't, I want to be careful with this, I'm not saying don't have standards. But they're of no avail, they're of no help, they don't really kill your flesh. Something else has to accomplish that. And so then when we come to chapter 3 and he says, this is how you approach this battle. He, he's calling on us to recognize that a bunch of rules, a bunch of rigid, ascetic abandonments of enjoying this life don't actually deal with the core problem in my soul. Maybe just by analogy, when my wife got COVID, uh, maybe two years ago, and my wife and I have been on a constant challenge to be disciplined in our eating. I asked her, I'm like, oh, so is this going to be easy for you? And like, well, we'll see. Because I thought, man, if she can't taste food, clearly, like, she, she just had simply be able to stay away from it all. And it'd be like, this would be a week of easy victory over food. But my wife's like, no, it was worse. Because I, I'm like chasing flavor. I just want to taste something. I'm eating everything I can find to, to like something that I can enjoy. It's worse than ever. Well, well think about that. Not tasting food didn't actually combat the desire for food. It actually stirred it stronger. And I think this is part of the concern for the Colossians is that their ideas of abstinence, and I mean abstinence not just from you know, immorality sexually, but abstinence in, in terms of enjoying some of the things that God has give us to, given us to enjoy is, is attacking the, the problem from the wrong angle. So how does he call us to it? Well, first, he doesn't lower the expectation. He, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on the things that are above, right? He's calling us to do something. These, are, these have imperatival power. And look at then how he leads it out. In verse 5, put to death, kill it, murder, destroy this thing. What? What is sexually immoral? Impurity, passion, evil desire. And if you have the King James, that would be uh, what is that? Concupiscence, right? Evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. Scoot down a little bit further, and you see he continues with another sin list in verse 8. Put away or put off, probably speaking of a metaphor with clothing, because you'll see he picks that again up, um, in verse 12. But when you look at verse 8, put away anger, wrath, malice, um, slander, obscene talk. Do not lie. Then you move forward to verse 12. Here we put this on. We are to be holy, right? We're to be compassionate, kind, 
humble, meek, patient. We need to bear with one another, which means be putting up with the, falling, the feelings and the shortcomings of others. To not complain against one another, instead forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. And put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let peace rule our hearts. There's a ton of expectation for the believer. So when he says, I, I am going to require you to pursue heaven, here's the outcome. Here's what it looks like. It's super practical. Get rid of anger. Get rid of malice. Get rid of um, uh, unkindness. Put on forgiveness. Uh, all of these characteristics are, are the application of what it means to seek things that are above. But seeking things that are above speaks more to the internal person. Okay, so this requirement to seek things above is anchored to a theological reality we call union with Christ. Okay, so, so look at how he says it here. He says, if then you've been raised, how? With Christ. Right? Seek those things that are above where Christ is. Look with me in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the earth. Why? Verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden. Where? With Christ. And, and so he has the, the two um, kind of major works of Christ in his cross work. His what? If you've been raised with Christ, right? And now we have him here, like we've died with Christ. He's saying that there is a huge importance for the believer not only to recognize that we have united with Christ in both his death and resurrection, it's not just a truth to know, this is a reality accomplished. Like something has happened that has caused a decisive break with the old life. We've been united with Christ, we've died with him. And, and he, he teases this out. Go back to chapter one with me real quickly. I'm going to read uh, a few verses, then I'm going to keep referring to them. So, uh, In chapter 1, look down with me into verse 12. We give thanks to the Father. This is his prayer, and he's, uh, his last participle here is giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Now, now, jump forward with me then to verse 21. You were once alienated. You were hostile in your minds, doing evil deeds. And now we come to chapter 2. Why don't you look with me in verse 11 and then in verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 11, he uses baptism to preach union with Christ. You have been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the powerful working of God. Okay, so in the baptism waters, this is something I, I think is consistent with Romans 6 as well as Colossians 2 here. In the baptism water, we are proclaiming a union with Christ whereby we are laid down into the grave with him. And we are raised up out of the grave to preach the resurrection to new life. That's Romans 6 and Colossians 2. So baptism preaches union with Christ. Now when Christ died and was buried, we have been laid in the grave with him. We have died with Christ. So that Paul can say, I am crucified with Christ. This is We all know this. But Paul is saying this, this ought to have massive implication on how you think. 
It's not just a spiritual reality we leave in a systematic theology book. This, this is meant to change the way we walk and feel and respond with our emotions. Okay, so we've been laid in the grave with Christ. I want you to go back to chapter 2 a little bit more. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision, this is verse 13, of your flesh. God made you alive together, what? With him. Okay, so we dealt with circumcision just a little bit this morning. I did not deal with the ritual and some of the significance at all. But often circumcision um, has, has a, a sense in which there's a removal of dirtiness and sin and corruption. Here the apostle is leveraging like Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 where God is talking about circumcising your hearts, speaking to regeneration, and here the removal or the crucifixion of the old man. That is, the polluted nature that always and incessantly wants to walk its own way, not Christ's way, has been circumcised away from the flesh of your heart so that now you have a heart that's made new. So that's something, and it says without human hands, because who does that work? Who regenerates you? Yeah, well, I... I'd probably say the Holy Spirit, but this is the work of God happening as, as the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to you, and you are buried with him, crucified with him, and given new life with him, and the Apostle Paul is showing and preaching to the Colossians this unification with Christ is the basis of pursuing holiness. And, and if you forget this, then you're going to start pursuing holiness on the basis of, of working harder and cutting out anything that tempts you. And really, if you're going to do that, your heart is such a committed, sinful heart that you're still going to sin even if you cut off all the stuff that tempts you. You're going to find some other way to sin. Because I know me, if I, if I can wrestle my soul to obedience in one area, I will immediately start patting myself on the back and telling everyone else how good I am. Which is sin. Like, it's amazing how, like, when you pursue holiness without Christ, even when you're winning, you lose. Because you cannot do this without Christ. And so the idea that you're winning, you lose, is you, you actually are just losing always. Right? That's why I read in chapter 1, verse 21, that we were hostile to God. So, I mean, when a kind, unbelieving man helps an old lady out of her car and helps load in the groceries, he's doing a good thing, but he's not doing a Christ-centered thing. Because he's hostile to God. And even something that's a good thing that he should do is not actually a righteousness for which God could ever commend him or for which he'd ever see, receive eternal reward because it's done without Christ and the consideration of his true king. And so the believer has this freedom that happens as he's unified with Christ. We make it say the two implications of union with Christ, and we've already read these, so let me just refer to the text. Is, is that you are no longer living in the realm of this world. Maybe you could say, your citizenship has been transferred from this darkness unto the kingdom of his, you finish it? Beloved son. Do you notice that was past tense when we read that? If you look at chapter one again, in verse 13, he has delivered us. That speaks to something he's already done. He has done it. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us 
into the kingdom of his beloved son. I, have a, I, I am a different citizen than I was prior to Christ. And Colossians 3 tells us that's my true citizenship. Look in Colossians 3 at how he, he tries to anchor this consideration of where I truly am to the believer's consciousness. I am to seek things that are above because that's where Christ is, and I'm unified with him. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are earth. Why? Because your life is where? It's hidden with Christ in God. And I think hidden probably has implications of both protected, as in I'm hidden from danger and those things that are prowling to destroy me like a roaring lion. But I'm also there, despite the fact it doesn't look like I'm there. That, that my true citizenship, my true location, as God sees me, is in heaven. And I know you've probably heard this before, and I think it bears repeating. Your salvation, if you are a genuine believer, is no less secure today than it will be when you've been in heaven for a thousand years. I mean, I, I've never once had any consideration that after I get to heaven, Christ welcomes me, rewards me, and I'm celebrating the joys of heaven, minding my, I would say minding my own business, living Christ's business for his glory, that all of a sudden I'm going to wake up one morning and find myself in hell. That doesn't happen. No one gets removed from heaven. You get in, you're there. And I am not more secure then than I am today if I'm in Christ. Because my life is hidden with him. But I don't see it. It's invisible to me. These eyes, which don't even have 20-20, can't see these spiritual realities. It's by faith I apprehend them. And then in verse 4, faith becomes sight. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear. So when will what is hidden be revealed? When Christ appears, then I'll see what is true. But right now, I feel like y'all are, are here, living in Bakersfield. And God says, no, 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 no. You're with Christ. The heavenly accounting says so. God has declared it to be so. You just have yet to physically be present with him. In a few weeks, I'll have the privilege of going to Uganda. It's not as though when I get on the plane and I, and I get over international waters, I'm like, oh, no. I feel like I've just lost my citizenship. I won't feel anything except a desire to get out of a chair that I'll have to sit in for hours and hours and hours. You don't sense citizenship. And when I'm working in Uganda, and even if I were to stay there for a long time, I'm not going to lose my citizenship here. It's a legal status that you can't be feeling or seeing, but it's true. And here our status is secured not by our own strength, but because of Christ. Okay, so so he, is, he is moving from requirements to reminders of what they should already know. You should already know that you're with Christ. You should already know that you're seated in the heavenlies. You should already know that your, your true realm has been moved from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But it's not just that. The death and resurrection of Christ tell me that I've had decisive change not only in the realm, but in the empowerment. That is, I am no longer hostile. I'm no longer an enemy enslaved to hostility. That with Christ's death, I have died. That crucifixion with Christ, that co-crucifixion, has now enabled me or freed me from the enslaving power of sin so that I can live for God. 
Now, it is with that hope, then, we should be counseling and preaching and pleading with others that addictions are not actually enslaving permanently. I'm not saying they're not compelling. I'm not saying they're not strong. I'm just saying you have hope. So some of you are like procrastinators and you're lifelong procrastinators. And some of that is just sinful. It's laziness. Or it's indifference. Well, you're like, man, that's who I've been the rest of my life, my whole life. I, I've tried. I can't. No. No, no, no. You can't. Why? Not because of you. Not because of discipline. And certainly not because of the, ne- the next Barnes & Noble bestseller. But because Christ has broken the slavery of sin and you died with him to that old way of living and the old nature has been crucified with Christ. Okay, having said that, there's these, these reminders. Seek these things above. Because that's where you truly are. That's where a true citizenship is. And in, in doing this, you are living as someone whose citizenship has been transferred to a new realm and who has been empowered to live like a citizen of that new realm. And you've been freed from the slavery of the old realm. This is, this is the theologically um, grounded anchor of the Christian to pursue holiness. But there's still the command to do what? Seek. Set your mind on. Okay, so if I'm a citizen of heaven, my true bank account that actually has treasure where neither moth nor rust can ruin, then I need to be living and thinking and considering what is truly valuable and right and good in this new kingdom to which I've been transferred. I need to think about these things. I need to pursue them. And, and so you, you might ask the question, okay, well, well why, why do the Colossians need to hear, hear this? What, what could possibly be causing them to miss out on this pursuit of heaven? So I, I just kind of thinking through maybe some categories in which I know I am tempted to think about things on the earth, and one of them is like my own comfort. I like being comfortable. You know, there are many things that make me uncomfortable, like talking to people I don't know, sharing the gospel with someone I don't know, working. I mean, think about the things that give you comfort. Doesn't rest give you comfort? And if you rest and rest and rest some more and rest some more and then rest some more, what's that called? Being idle or lazy. <laughs> but I like resting. I like being comfortable, which usually requires me to have some solid money in my bank account. I like being comfortable in a nice house that fits our six kids. I like having stuff. All of that is very earthly. And if I'm not careful, my pursuit of comfort is an abandonment of Christ. It's not just comfort I like. I like being controlled too. I like to manage my family. I like my kids to obey me. And when they don't, often it's about Mark, not the Messiah. It's about the fact that I said something and you didn't do what I said. But what I should be thinking is, Christ has called you to obey me and you've just rebelled against Christ. But I have a tendency to think about like this earthly relationship, mom, dad, child. And so what I should be thinking about is child to Christ. And, and so I have this tendency to, to like manage and control. Or even just the simple things of, you know, I want to leave and my wife isn't ready to leave. I don't like that. I don't like traffic. 
I don't like rude people in traffic. I want to be in control. I want everyone to do what I think they should do, which is open up and let me drive through. <laughs> Tell me you're not a control person. If you, if you struggle with anger and anxiety, you probably want to be in control. And when the world reminds you you're not, and you're filled with anxiety or anger, you aren't living for heaven. Because we do know who is in control. And so when God, in his sovereign wisdom, decides to put some loser in front of me who's going 10 miles under the speed limit on a single-lane road, I'm not saying this has happened recently or anything. It happened last night. (laughs) Like, Like, I can feel myself get bothered. My wife's like, Mark, they can't hear you. And, and I'm not, like, saying anything real bad. I'm just like, what is wrong with this person? Like, can they see that I'm behind them and I want to go forward and they're going slow? Like, why? Why can't they just, like, pull over a little bit? I'll just go by them. It's just like, come on, man. It's like, Mark, it doesn't help. They have no idea. But in those moments, Mark's control is revealed to be incompetent to manage life the way I want to. And I sin oftentimes in moments where I'm reminded I can't control things and I don't get my comfort. I mean, we could go through many more, whether it's the pursuit of pleasure, which I think you see almost initially right off the bat when he deals with sexual sins and the desire for money and greed. That, that these, are, these are realities that have been common to all mankind of all ages, that we love things that make us feel good. And our world is just preaching that this is actually good for us. I mean, one of the most terrible sins to commit to anyone is to make them feel uncomfortable. If you don't use the right pronouns, if you don't agree with their lifestyle, if you challenge the way they've been making choices about their life, frankly, if a boss tells a worker that they're not working very hard, you have, you have just disrupted this poor soul's psyche, and you have done damage. Well, the fact is, we are a world that's addicted to our own comfort and our own pleasure, or maybe just seeking our own honor. We want people to like us, to praise us. We we want to be acknowledged for the deeds we've done. And in all of these ways, it's almost as though we are robbing from heaven for today. Do do you want, like, honor now, or do you want honor from Jesus later? Do you want people to acknowledge you now so that you fight for their seeing of your stuff and praise of your stuff and things you do? Or would you rather get to heaven and have no acknowledgement on this earth but have Jesus Christ say, well done. I was watching those quiet hours when you were working and laboring and no one else said thank you. I was honored because you labored thanklessly. I was honored in those quiet morning hours when you woke up early, wanted to get back to sleep, but instead got up and prayed. I was honored when you were serving at church and no one said thank you, but you kept working in the nursery. You just got to keep ringing that bell. Not really, our nursery's doing great. But, but I, I look at these ways in which I struggle, and I think, I think there are ways in which I leverage my life for its best use today, and I don't consider heaven. And you can see how it leads to a toxic church and a toxic home. Anger and malice and greed and unkindness and a lack of forgiveness. This is what happens when we live for today. Someone hurts my pride, hurts my feelings, doesn't do what I want, I don't forgive them. I don't treat them kindly. I'm not gentle to them in response to them. That's living for this earth. So, so, so to come full circle here and kind of like put a bow on it, bring it packaged together, he's, he's suggested to us that a whole bunch of rules of don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, 
a whole bunch of abandonment or abstinence from certain joys in life is not actually how you get holiness. But he doesn't say, so therefore, just live for today and don't have any rules. His point is, is this is actually just a wrong method. The method by which the Christian pursues holiness is to start with his relationship to Jesus Christ and his anchoring to Christ so that he considers heaven as the guide stone for what he does and doesn't do. What is going to be valued in eternity? What am I going to love in eternity that I could do now? Like, if you could talk to yourself from heaven a thousand years in the future and preach to yourself, what would you tell yourself not to do and to do? I mean, would you, would you tell yourself, yeah, you know what, they were rude. You let them have it. No way you say that to yourself. And, and you certainly wouldn't say, hey, you know what you need is a little bit more control of everyone around you. So be a little more manipulative and, and you know, let, let a little bit of anger out because then people will, they'll, they'll be careful around you. You won't say that to yourself. And so as we consider heaven and we can almost imagine us preaching to ourselves, you'll find that you have a heart that loves heaven. And a heart that considers how delightful it will be to live for heaven instead of this earth. But it's more than that. You're not just living for your heaven. You're living for Christ. So if you can imagine what you would want to say to yourself, the thing you would say is, live for him. Seek his pleasure and his joy. Then remind yourself and preach to yourself that you have been empowered through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to resist Satan and sin and the hostile thoughts in your imagination to God. And you can pursue Christ's likeness. You have been transferred to the realm of his beloved son. Live for him. Live for that king. And so maybe just in summary, you captured all. I think we'd say the foundation of holiness is living for the king. The foundation of holiness is living for the king. And I could, you want an L word there, loving and living for the king. And if you really want to go crazy, loving loyalty as you live for the king. Right? Like it's, it's all of that is what he's calling us to do in chapter 3. Um, I think young people, so tie it into the, the young adult retreat. Young people show us a little bit more just um, unfiltered, without, um, with amount, uh, without as much nuance or carefulness exactly who we are. You know, I, I can make my sin look really godly. When I, you know, <laughs> adults learn how to play the game. Kids just tell you what they think. I think kids, kids tell you really clearly they're afraid that if they're holy, they'll miss out on things that they really want to enjoy. If I'm holy, I'm not going to mess around with my girlfriend. Are you telling me that if I really want to be sexually satisfied, I can only marry one person and stay with them for life and only have one sexual partner, and you're telling me that that's better? And we're like, yeah, that's exactly what God's word says. And the young person's like, you're dumb. There's no way that's true. You know, that, that's clear when it comes to like purity, which is, again, the first thing he ticks off there as he starts going through verse 5. But that's, that's what a young person is struggling with. They want money. They want relationships. They want honor. They want respect. They want satisfaction. They want rest and comfort. They want to be in control. And you and I are no difference. We just don't say what we're thinking. And, and we've found ways to, to cover it in 
with Christian paint so that people don't see too deeply into our soul. So, seek what is above, where Christ sits at the right hand of the throne of God.